Welcome to Dear Prudence. I'm your Prudence, Janae Desmond-Harris. Today, we'll be discussing letters about what to do when a friend is obsessed with misogynistic love and relationship podcasts, when your husband just can't figure out birthday gifts, and when you're wondering, does therapy just not work for me? Here to help me out today is Dr. Orna Goralnik. She's a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst practicing in New York City. She's also the host of Showtime's Couples Therapy, an amazing documentary series following couples as they seek our help with their relationships. I promise I'm not going to spend the whole introduction bonding over her and talking about how excited I am because I always fast forward through that part of podcast. It's just awkward to listen to. But suffice it to say, I'm really excited. And if you watch the show, you get it. If you don't, you should watch the show. Welcome, Orna. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Jenny. I'm very happy to be here. It's great that you're here because every advice columnist does this balance of giving our opinion and then always mentioning, but also think about therapy, but also you and your husband should go to therapy, but also I hope you're in therapy. And so you're sort of like the therapist in our imagination who they can go to, to really solve the underlying problems. And you're here with us today, so I can't wait to hear your take on these serious and unserious letters that we deal with. So before we get started, I did want to ask you um, just for one piece of unsolicited advice that you'd love to give off the top of your head. It might sound a little like old mommy talking, but um, keep the state of the world in mind. Mm. And um, hold your actual relationship with uh, tenderness, considering what's going on in the world. Great advice. You have to think about the bigger picture, right? Yeah. I imagine you're also thinking about all the different forces that are affecting all of us. Right. They're very powerful forces that could very easily pull us towards animosity, resentments, tearing each other up to shreds, Mm -hmm. kind of not keeping in mind how easy it is to destroy and how difficult it is to rebuild. Absolutely. So keep that in mind. Great advice. Okay, with that, Orna and I will dive into your questions after a short break. Can't get enough Dear Prudence? Then you should definitely join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. You'll get to hear me answer an extra question every week just for members. With your subscription, you get ad-free listening across the Slate network and unlimited reading on the Slate site, including all Dear Prudence columns, past and present. Go to slate.com forward slash prudyplus to sign up. It's just $15 for your first three months. Again, that's slate.com forward slash prudyplus. Welcome back. You're listening to Dear Prudence, and I'm here with Dr. Orna Goralnik. Let's get started with our first letter. It's titled, No Birthday Gift Blues. I met my now husband when we worked together five years ago. We dated on and off and never really seriously. I wanted to commit. He wasn't ready until I moved away for work. 
Once I was gone, we still were in contact and he decided that he wanted to commit to me. We were doing a long distance thing for a while and decided to discuss our future when I came back for a wedding. The timing worked out that I would also be there for my birthday. I had planned a grouped event to see a lot of friends, but the actual date of my birthday was a weekday, and I had plans to just hang out with my then-boyfriend, now-husband. He didn't have anything planned or do anything for my birthday. Not a card, not flowers, not a gift, not an activity. Nothing. He said, happy birthday, and expected me to hang out with him at his house. I was really upset. I stayed for a bit and then left. We didn't speak for several days, and I considered ending it. He called and asked to take me out after a couple days. We went out and I explained that birthdays are really important to me. They are the one day a year that is about a person and not shared as a social holiday and that I need him to do something for it in the future. We discussed the future and he quit his job and moved in with me away from his friends and family. I think for him, this was a gift in his mind. He was committing to me and making a monumental change in his life for me. We lived together for about eight months when he proposed. We started planning a large wedding, but ended up having a small family wedding a few months later instead. We've now been married for three months, and my birthday came around again. He asked if I would mind if he cooked supper for my birthday in advance, and I said that'd be great. On the day of my birthday, I got a happy birthday text message. He was at work. He didn't say happy birthday to me before he left, and he came home with flowers. But nothing else! My birthday gift was him cooking me supper. He does this a couple nights a week already. I cook most of the time or we get takeout. When I asked him why he didn't get me a gift or anything, he said, I am too hard to shop for. I already buy everything I want anyway. This is not true. I had been dropping hints for a month before my birthday of stuff I'd like, including him planning a day trip for us of hiking and breakfast or a short getaway or items or detailing my car. I've tried to discuss it but he won't engage. He just shuts down and hopes it goes away. And I want to discuss it. I want to know why he didn't do anything for my birthday. It bothers me that we had a monumental conversation the year before, and he seemed to completely forget or ignore it, my wishes and feelings. Part of my anger is that for three years, I had been making sure I marked his birthday. I always get him a gift and throw him a party or a getaway. I know that his family does gifts because he had asked my help pre-ordering his mother a gift for her birthday. And he was upset it wouldn't arrive on the day of her birthday. He also made sure to buy his dad a gift before he left town so that it would be there. So, Orna, this is actually a huge theme in the letters I receive, and I can feel it coming as the holidays approach. I know I'll get more on this topic. Um, I also see it in my various Facebook groups and moms groups. There's this pattern of women, and this letter writer doesn't give pronouns, but I'm going to go out on a limb and assume it's a woman. Women not receiving gifts from their husbands and feeling really hurt by it and mentioning it and still being disappointed. And the most popular solutions I see are you have to tell them it's important to you. But often that still doesn't work. And the next solution ends up being, you know what, just take the credit card and buy your own gift, stuff your own stocking. Can you help me understand what it is with like this particular source of disappointment in relationships? And is there a more useful framework for thinking about what's happening when a woman um, is constantly disappointed in this area? Yeah, um, tricky. You know, when I'm listening to this, I'm thinking about a few things. First of all, Janae, the issue of being disappointed is a major issue, Mm -hmm. like the, the experience of disappointment is a very rich and 
fertile ground to explore when you're thinking analytically about like what triggers things between two people in a couple. So I'm, I'm going to go back to the experience of disappointment, but you know, disappointment about not getting gifts in my mind is similar or parallel to this appointment of, Oh, I ask him, just don't leave your coffee cup in the sink. Why don't you just rinse your cup? I've asked it a million times or pick up your socks. I asked it a million times. Um, in a way it kind of captures what I think is most difficult and most profound about being in a relationship, which is that your partner is going to be different from you. Mm. And that is the difficulty. And that is the big challenge in, in challenge for growth. So, um, we can talk specifically about gifts, but I want to put it in the context of people having different ways of doing things, whether it's celebrating birthdays or showing love or um, taking care of the house. You know, there's, there's this um, famous books of 30 years ago, Love Languages. People need and demonstrate love and care differently. And um, to some extent, it's sort of each person comes with their own DNA of what matters to them and how they want to show it. And then starts a, a negotiation, a subtle negotiation about which language are we using in this relationship. So that's kind of the more general context I would like to put this into. Um, and then we can talk more specifically about disappointment and about this particular predicament of, let's say, this couple, birthday presents and how to understand it. What you said reminded me that I, I've heard you say before that the journey in a relationship is to negotiate otherness. Um, how do you deal with the fact that your partner is different from you? And you've said in a relationship, you're creating your own mini political system. So what kind of system do you believe in and what are your ethics about difference? So is right. I like birthday gifts and he's not into giving birthday gifts, just one of those many differences that can exist in a relationship? Yes, but I would say that there's something probably a lot uh, more interesting happening here than simply receiving gifts or not receiving gifts on a birthday. Mm -hmm. I would start with the um, writers leaning into disappointment in a very kind of dogged way, because even in this short letter that she sent you, she's describing all sorts of ways in which this partner has been very loving, giving, moving for her, remembering that the birthday matters to her, so offering to cook supper, like finding his way of moving into her world. Mm -hmm. And rather than see that as his way of giving and giving a lot in terms of holding her in mind this writer is really leaning into disappointment. Mm -hmm. And when people are invested in disappointment, if that's kind of a major place for them to be disappointed, that's a place that they need to do a lot of work internally to understand what this is about for them. Why, why is that the focus for them? The mm -hmm. disappointment versus what is there? It's, it's, you know, it's kind of the glass half empty right. preoccupation. Is that about some kind of early deprivation for her that she's working through in this example and kind of missing the bigger picture? You know, I started off by talking about the bigger picture. Yeah. Like, is she missing out something bigger that's happening between them and, and feeling like she needs to kind of drop into some kind of sinkhole of disappointment? And what is that about for her? And then 
you know, it's, there were little clues in, in the way she was phrasing things that made me think, okay, there's a more complicated negotiation going on there because he, he may not know what's going on with him. Like why is the birthday gift like something that's hard for him to do, Mm -hmm. but it's obviously hard for him to do. There's some reason why that's not, he's not leaning in that direction. And he says, um, that he said something like that she's hard to please or Mm -hmm. hard to buy for. Yeah. Too hard to shop for. I already buy everything I want anyway. So, so he's telling her a clue. He's giving her a clue that there's a way in which he knows he's going to disappoint her. Mm. He's saying, okay, there's like a well of disappointment over there. I'm afraid to go there. There's some way that he feels ill-equipped. So the more she leans into disappointment, the more he's going to feel ill-equipped to satisfy that, which is not a place where you want a gift from. It's a place where you want to hide from. Right. That's so interesting. I was going to point out to you that, well, he manages to get gifts for other people in his family. He got gifts for his mom. He, He knows what a gift is. He's not opposed to shopping. But although she didn't, she say that he asked for help. I guess. Yeah, right. He did ask for help. That's true. So there's some way that that pleasing someone else is anxiety provoking for him. And the more anxious you feel about it, the less generous you're going to feel. That makes so much sense. Um, So it's a dynamic. Right. What should the letter writer actually do? I think she ideally she'd want to actually remind herself of ways in which he is giving Mm -hmm. and thank him for that and and talk about that lean into the ways oh my god you you moved for me you remembered it's my birthday you're actually going to make me supper that's so sweet Mm -hmm. um and what i mean what's the thing about the gift itself i mean there's probably so many other ways in which he's showing up from this letter it sounds like right like focus on that okay figure out with herself what is it about the thing itself, the gift itself that really matters to her. What happened to her when she was a kid around birthdays? Like, what did it mean to her? Right. I mean, people have a lot of projections about birthdays and what it means to them. Mm-hmm. So I would be interested just not as a dynamic between them, but as as something for her to figure out what does it mean to her. Interesting. This token. And then thinking about the bigger picture of what's going on with her husband and what's going on with her, I saw some hints in the letter that maybe there's a deeper question about, I want to say, whether he really loves her or is really excited about her. So Mm -hmm. she writes, we dated on and off and never really seriously. I wanted to commit. He wasn't ready. And also that she believes that um, his move with her away from his family, I think for him, that was a gift in his mind. So it's almost mm-hmm. as if I'm getting the feeling that he was maybe a little bit on the fence about committing to her and feels like he is a gift to her. Just his presence, his decision to commit and be with her geographically and emotionally. Well, that is him. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't be suspicious about yeah. that. That is a gift. I yeah. mean, he's moving into her world. Mm-hmm. It's not... I wouldn't like be cynical about that. Yeah. Okay. So that's a, that's a fair enough. I can imagine like moving for your partner. You feel like you have done a lot for them. And that's, that's way bigger a gesture than going and buying a gift. I love this. This is why you're a therapist and I'm an advice columnist. Cause I'm sitting here thinking <laughs> you, I mean, you, 
he has the upper hand. You love him a little bit more than he loves you. You you want to be with someone who's as excited about you as you are about them, and they show it in the way that you want to see it. So in my mind, I'm not supposed to tell people to break off in very many letters, but I would be thinking, well, evaluate whether this relationship is working for you and talk to your therapist. But it sounds like if the letter writer talked to their therapist, they might find a way to feel a little bit more at peace about this situation. Right. And understand what is it about this, like digging into disappointment that, that, that is, what is it for her? Yeah. It's worth thinking about. Um, okay. Yeah. What is it for her? Think about, think about what's really going on here for you. Um, yeah. And in the meantime, I guess, go ahead and take the joint credit card and get yourself something that you would like to have. What is it with things anyhow? Mm. Bigger question. What is it with things? Yeah. <laughs> That's another one where I, I think you said, think about our whole society and how it affects your relationship, I guess. Yes. That would be a perfect example, right? Yeah. The things that accumulate, the things. You're listening to The Dear Prudence Show. And when we come back, we'll be reading more of your letters. Stay with us. Welcome back to Dear Prudence. I'm here with my guest, Dr. Orna Goralnik, to answer your letters. And the next one is titled, Mopped Up Love. Loneliness and relationship podcasts are ruining my friend's life, and I don't know how to help her. She's tried all of the usual stuff. She's in therapy. She works out. She surrounds herself with a variety of really good people. She has a wonderful and prestigious career that she keeps secret and doesn't lead with. She has tons of supportive family and a great community with a local church and volunteers there a lot. However, I can't help but notice that lately she's adopted a deeply envious view of women that are in long-term committed relationships. She's an avid listener of those misogynistic relationship podcasts that go, as a woman, you should be, and that's how you get married. And to be honest, it's ruining her life. We've just turned 30 and her optimistic views on dating are totally ruined. She sees every unmarried woman as competition and or a barrier to her dream life and is starting more and more to take attention from men wherever she can get it. Recently, she had a falling out with a guy she really likes. He's engaged to someone else, something she knew when they met, and now that he's pulling away, she's blaming herself and quoting the most critical podcast lines I've ever heard. All she ever talks about is being lonely and wanting marriage and kids. We share really different views on this, and I'm more of a free bird kind of girl. I have no issues dating or spending time without dating. I feel really fulfilled either way. However, when I am actively dating, she usually does really harsh comparisons between the guys that we're courting. I'm trying really hard to get her to see the silver lining and realize she's not as lonely as she thinks. But she doesn't agree. I've run out of things to say. Is there anything that can be done? So this is a part of the internet that I've largely tried to tune out. I just like cannot engage with the misogynistic relationship stuff. But if anyone out there is like me and hasn't really become familiar um, with this kind of content, it's basically male hosts who don't have any legitimate expertise saying to women, this is what you need to do to have a husband. You need to look this way. You need to be submissive. You need to not stress him out or question him. Men and women are fundamentally different. And if you would just play your role correctly and be a woman the right way, someone would love you. So Orna, I know that you often help couples understand how patriarchy shapes their experiences with the world. And you've actually pointed out how men and women both suffer from it, having to play what we imagine to be masculine or feminine roles. And that kind of splits us 
in a way that is harmful like to our well-being and I wonder how you see that playing out here. Well, first of all, thank you for summarizing one of the things that matter to me a lot. So yes, <laughs> thanks for that. That was a great summary. You know, when I heard this uh, writer, what struck me more than gender and gender roles and misogyny, even though I, I'd like to talk about that, what struck me more was um, their friendship. Hmm. And in a way... Sorry to sound like, you know, the one trick pony, but in a way, their relationship as friends was interesting to me. And how do you negotiate difference in friendship? Mm -hmm. Because what the writer is describing are two very different ways of thinking about relationships and dating and the experience of loneliness. Right. And it sounds like um, this writer is feeling pretty centered in her life. Like dating is not like the central issue for her. It's one of other issues that she's working with. And this friend is very focused on finding a mate mm -hmm. and something about that focus and the deep experience of loneliness that this friend is bringing is hard for the writer. Right. I thought kind of the heart of the matter here was that the friend is talking about feeling so lonely and the writer is trying to convince her out of that. There's mm -hmm. something about the experience of loneliness that the writer has trouble bearing, yeah. doesn't want to identify with. Um, so I thought that was kind of the key issue here um, because loneliness is real. It's one of the, um, you know, it's one of the core issues that people deal with, especially in this society. There's so many ways that we are put into kind of isolation and, and disconnection from our community, from each other. And, and loneliness is powerful. It's a very intense experience, painful, intense experience. And it's not something you can just talk someone out of, you know, you're great, yeah. you're beautiful, you have a great career, you should be happy. Don't right. focus on ending your loneliness. You just, it's not something that can be kind of like negotiated away, right? Or reasoned exactly. away. Exactly. And why it, it seems like the friend, like the writer is having a hard time acknowledging maybe even her own loneliness or certainly her friend's loneliness. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's sort of a, a no-go area. So I would like try to take a deep breath and, and like, just sit side by side with this friend with her loneliness and how hard that is. Hmm. And the friend is also bringing up something that is another really difficult feeling, which has to do with envy. Right. Um, when you're in a stage in your life where you don't have certain things and other people do have it, I mean, that does provoke envy. It's a really difficult feeling to own, to tolerate, to not, um, to not be vengeful about, so this friend is presenting the writer with difficult feelings, right? right? Loneliness and envy. So I would focus more on trying to have compassion for the friend and for herself about those issues. She might have trouble acknowledging those parts of herself, the writer. So that's what struck me, first of all, about this letter. And then later I was thinking about like, the gender issue and like the need to kind of hypergender the situation. And, and I think, you know, the inclination to, to say to someone, Oh, all you need to do is like, you know, 
I don't know, put on some gender drag performance and, and mm-hmm. like hyper gender the situation and everything will be resolved. Right. I, I think people do think that gender can resolve deep existential issues and it doesn't. Right. It's just kind of a, a, a performance, a mask that kind of pseudo solves things, but then really creates a lot of, um, we pay a lot of a big price for being gendered, for being hyper gendered. Right. And from the outside, I think we can see that even if the letter writer's friend were to follow the advice of all these misogynistic relationship podcasts and behave according to a certain script, anyone can see that that wouldn't probably lead to happiness because it would be a performance and she would have to keep up the performance um, every day just to keep loneliness at bay if it didn't exactly lead to getting a partner. I liked what you said about how the letter writer could simply sit with her friend in Mm -hmm. her loneliness um, and have compassion for her. I think that's, such a good insight because so many of the letters I receive are from someone looking at a friend making bad choices or not dealing with their mental health or being in a bad relationship and just desperately wanting to fix them, you know? Mm-hmm. And the, I feel like the options are usually presented as, well, I'm trying to get her or him to change. And if they won't, like maybe I'll have to pull back from this friendship and people's minds don't seem to, automatically go to the idea of I can just be there keep with them. them company yeah keep I can them keep company, them company while yeah. they're suffering yeah and maybe I mean doesn't it seem that on some level that might help with the loneliness like a of friend course. who's very lonely doesn't need someone to tell them to stop being their, lonely yeah delete your podcast feeds consume different material they need someone to make them feel less lonely and the friend right. is actually perfectly situated to do that right do you think there should be couples counseling for friends yes yeah. Yes. I, I think friendships are um, undervalued, not really undervalued. They're not, we don't pay attention to friendships in the way that we pay to like families, intimate relationships and friendships are kind of the fascia, kind of the connective tissue that holds everything together. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the the way they talk about mushrooms now, like connecting all the trees and living things. Yeah. It, it, friendship keeps the world together. Totally. Aside from being there, keeping them company, do you have any other thoughts on how to stay friends with someone who has very different views and just makes really different choices than you would? I mean, unless we're talking about like really extreme situations where someone is, let's say, at risk or, or right. you know, ethically doing things that are questionable. But if we're just talking about difference, I think a lot of it is paying attention to what that difference, whatever the thing about the friend is like triggering for you to pay attention to your own reaction Mm -hmm. and think about it. Like, why is that difficult for me? What is that reminding me of? What is this friend representing that I have a hard time acknowledging in myself? Mm -hmm. Um, Is this an excuse to revisit something from some other time, either in the friendship or in my own history? But when when someone is kind of aggravating you, it's a good chance to ask yourself what's going on inside me that it, that this is kind of becoming like a trigger point. I mean, that's kind of a yeah. psychoanalytic way of thinking about things. No, it makes so much sense. I have heard you say before that we can consider other people's annoyances to be the thorn from which our growth can come. And that's usually, yes. I think that was in the context of a ro- romantic relationship, but it really does mm-hmm. apply in friendship too, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. This is Dear Prudence. We need to take a break, but when we come back, more letters from you and advice from us. Stay tuned. 
I'm Janae, and you're listening to Dear Prudence. Orna and I are about to tackle our last question for the day. This letter is titled, Am I someone for whom therapy just won't work? I've had several therapists over the last couple years. I just don't gel with any of them. I've ghosted a few, told a couple that it just wasn't working, and told a couple others to fuck the fuck off. Yes, in those words. I feel like the problem is me, and I'd be okay with that and would find ways to manage my mental health on my own. I guess I'm just wondering if continuing to try to find the right therapist is worth it. I know one of your goals for the show Couples Therapy is to democratize therapy and to show a variety of different people with different identities engaging in therapy, which used to be sort of reserved for like a privileged few. Is one piece of that helping people understand what therapy is, what it can look like, and what kinds of therapy are available? Yes, it is. Um, to, to help people imagine what therapy is, what it could look like, that it's not a scary thing most of the time, that it's actually, right. it, should, it should be a good, not easy, but good experience. Working as a psychoanalyst, one of the things I hope the show conveyed is that therapy is not necessarily a place where you go just to feel better. Mm. It's a place you go to think to think right. deeply about things you don't think about on your own. Right. You know what a huge pet peeve of mine is? I feel like as therapy has been destigmatized, um, it's been characterized as having someone to talk to. You just need someone to talk to. A therapist yeah. to just talk to. Sometimes you have a hard day and you need to just talk to someone, but right. that's not actually what it is. It's not just talking to someone. It's right. like a whole process. And I think a lot of people think they don't need therapy because they have people to talk to. Right. which is important, but it's not really like scratching the same itch. I was wondering if you could just briefly, for anyone who's listening who might not know, talk about an overview of like the different types of therapy that are out there. I know on your website, you talk about um, psychoanalysis and other types of therapy. Could you just like give a, a quick overview of those? Yeah, happily. Um, if I had to put it in like main buckets, I mean, there are certain therapies that are um, meant to address very specific issues, like they, they're targeted for particular issues. And those are typically what we call cognitive behavioral therapies, where mm -hmm. you, let's say you have a fear of spiders or a fear of flying, or you have a certain kind of OCD that is taking time in the morning, um, or anxious about a particular, you keep, find yourself anxious about a particular thing, but a, a, a circumscribed problem. For that, we have um, therapies that are indeed quite targeted and they're what we often call evidence-based. There's been a lot of research around those therapies um, and they tend to be short-term focused mostly on conscious thoughts and behaviors that people can do to change their particular ways of engaging with particular issues and experience some relief. Like if you're finding that when you drive on bridge, you tend to catastrophize every bad thing that can happen on a bridge and bring yourself to the brink of panic, you learn to kind of assess your own thoughts, like what is the probability, when, what triggers this kind of thing. Um, and those are short-term therapies and pretty rational. In the other bucket would be what I would call psychoanalytically informed or psychodynamic therapies that are aimed to uncover deeper issues that are issues mostly that you have to get to know parts of the self that you haven't known before, unconscious parts of you. 
um, parts of yourself that you may not be comfortable with that either have been either provoke shame in you or have been disavowed early on by caregivers or by society at large. So those are therapies that take longer. You spend more time with your therapist. Sometimes uh, when you do real psychoanalysis, you meet with people several times a week, two, three times a week. Sometimes we use the couch um, to help people like really let go and get to know parts of themselves that are not familiar to them, that are either uh-huh. repressed or dissociated. And that's when you tackle much deeper ingrained patterns that you've acquired early on in life and that you keep repeating and you don't know why they keep happening to you. People that self-sabotage again and again, same difficulty in their relationship comes up again and again, deeper issues. Would you say there's generally a type of therapy that's the right fit for everyone? Is there a lid for every pot when it comes to people and and kinds of therapy that might be available to them? First of all, I actually don't think that therapy is for everyone. Mm. Um, I think the therapies that I describe, whether cognitive behavioral or analytically oriented, psychodynamic, first of all, they, to some degree, are rooted in language. Mm-hmm. The transaction is in language. To, I mean, there's other things that happen, especially when you're sitting with a person in a room. Um, and they're, to some degree, also culturally bound. I mean, th- there's a way in which psychoanalysis is very... Uh, contingent on the culture in which we live with the ideas of like, what is, what is a good childhood? What is a good relationship? What are goals to aim for? And not everyone shares those particular values and, mm-hmm. and might feel alienated by that whole language. So yeah, therapy is not necessarily for everyone. Okay. The type of therapy doesn't, people differ in how deep they want to go and, and how much access they want to have to their inner emotional world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm a psychoanalyst. I feel like, oh, everyone should want to like know everything about what's going on inside them, but not everyone is that interested in that. Mm-hmm. Some people want to spend their time, I don't know, in a lab, you know, checking out like, you know, the cognitive maps of mice and they, they don't want to dig into their inner emotional world. And that's legit. Right. Or pu- some people want to paint. They don't want to think in words. So there are many ways to live life. Um, I happen to think that the journey inward to figure out what's going on in your emotional and conscious life is very enriching. So what would you say to the letter writer who's tried a few times and hasn't had luck um, and has told people to F off a few times? Should the letter writer continue to try to find the right therapist? I would say find a therapist with whom you can talk about what's going on with this mistrust. There's, it, it sounds like any hint of uh, mismatch or disappointment is, evokes like really intense reactions in him. So they're suspecting, I feel the problem is me. So the problem seems to be, first of all, mistrust and difficulty letting another person in. So I would start with a therapist that can talk to them about that. So the next time they try someone out and sit down and the therapist says, so what brings you here today? Instead of saying, my coworkers are annoying and I want to break up my boyfriend, the letter writer should maybe say, I think I'm really struggling with a lot of mistrust. I'm really struggling with like all these therapies that I tried and didn't work out. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be good to see how the therapist responds to that. If the therapist tries gently to get in there and understand what is that about or dismisses that and 
doesn't know how to engage with that because that seems to me like the first order of business, like getting in the door seems to be difficult for this person. So let's talk about getting in the door. Those are all the questions we have for this week. It's been fun and hopefully helpful. Thank you, Orna. Thank you for inviting me. This has been uh, a very enjoyable conversation. If you'd like to hear more conversations like this, watch seasons one to three of Couples Therapy on Showtime. If you'd like to apply to work with Dr. Gralnick on the next season of Showtime's Couple Therapy, visit her website at ornagralnick.com to learn how. Do you need help getting along with partners, relatives, coworkers, and people in general? Write to me. Go to slate.com forward slash prudy. That's slate.com forward slash P-R-U-D-I-E. The Dear Prudence column publishes every Thursday. If you'd like to hear your question answered on the podcast, we're looking for letter writers who would be comfortable recording their questions for the show. You can stay anonymous. Dear Prudence is produced by Sierra Spragley-Ricks with a special thanks to Maura Curry. Editorial help from Paola de Verona. Daisy Rosario is Senior Supervising Producer, and Alicia Montgomery is Slate's VP of Audio. I'm your dear Prudence, Janae Desmond-Harris. Until next time!